Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... What Grata does is provide this financial support to say, you know what, you go ahead with the case. If you lose, we'll cover the cost. And it's this small thing that actually is making a big difference in enabling cases to actually get to court, especially those big structural impact cases. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 441 of Impact Boom. My name's Sarah and I'm passionate about visioning and empowering initiatives that are causing positive transformation locally and globally. Today, we are speaking with Isabel Reinecke. In 2017, Isabel founded the Grata Fund, a leading not-for-profit based at the University of New South Wales that acts as a campaigner, litigation incubator and funder for people and communities challenging systemic gridlocks across three key areas, human rights, climate injustice and democratic freedoms. As the executive director of Grata, she leads the strategy and collaboration with some of Australia's top legal minds. She's helped facilitate almost $2 million in philanthropic case funding from passionate supporters. Prior to this, Isabel worked for more than 10 years as the director and lawyer and organisations including Get Up, Immigration Advice and Rights Centre, and as a solicitor at Clayton Newells, where she acted for First Nations clients seeking stolen wages, reparations in remote East Kimberley. Isabel was named the 2022 Emerging Not-for-Profit Leader in Women's Agenda Leadership Awards. She's a Churchill Fellow, and in 2021, she was a Women's Leadership Institute of Australia Fellow awarded to women who are leaders in their respective fields and women who have innovative approaches and the courage, conviction and capacity to create real change. On today's podcast, we will discuss Isabel's work with the Grata Fund and how they've incubated numerous landmark cases, as well as how her work is shifting the dial on important subjects across the areas of human rights, climate injustice and democratic freedom. Isabel, it's terrific to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Isabel, to start off, could you please share a little bit about your background with us and just let us know what it is that has led you to where you are today? Thank you so much. I studied law at ANU and I studied psychology as well. And I thought that I was going to be a psychologist, but it turned out that law really took over for me. Funnily, I think it's because they're both really about 
people, just different aspects of people. One's obviously psychology, it's person to person and how we interact with each other. But law at its heart is actually just about how governments and societies interact with one another. And that's through the sort of invisible web of law that shapes all of our lives. And I went on to become a corporate lawyer. And really in that time as a corporate lawyer, I did a lot of really interesting pro bono work, which I was grateful to do, including on things like sexual servitude and domestic violence and works for some really impressive women who had experienced some pretty terrible things and were using the legal system as best they could to seek some sort of justice. And I also spent time, as you mentioned, in remote East Kimberley working on stolen wages reparations, which is essentially this government system that saw lawfully governments retain basically all of the wages, the very small wages that First Nations people were earning on missions and stations throughout the country. And that was all over the country, including WA. And that sort of backbreaking work that went on for decades that people didn't receive any money for. The WA government, for example, used those funds to pay for police escorts for themselves around WA rather than going to First Nations people to build their own wealth in what was for them this sort of new colonial system. That actually, interestingly, has just settled. There has been a class action just recently on that case where $180 million, I think it is, has been achieved as part of a settlement for stolen wages reparations in WA for the next of kin and, and any surviving people who were subject to that scheme. But that was a really harrowing experience, understanding face-to-face through working with 100 clients, just really understanding their lives and histories, how difficult it is to have a colonial legal system in any way provide justice for injustices caused by it. Anyway, I moved on and worked in the nonprofit field and eventually found my way to a big campaign organisation. And I think the thing I really understood there was that if you could combine the tools of campaigners and advocacy with the tools of powerful lawyers and, and the understanding the law in court, you could make big shifts in society and big shifts in the way communities are able to seek justice. And I guess that's my roundabout way that I got to, to doing what I'm doing now. And I think now I really say to people that among campaigners, I feel like a lawyer and among lawyers, I feel like a campaigner. So I sit across these two fairly different disciplines, but I'm pretty passionate about how you can pull them together to make big change in the world. As we were discussing in the intro, you are the founder of the Grata Fund, so you do sit across different spaces. Can you tell us more about the Grata Fund and the organisation, the work you do and the impact it's generating? Absolutely. So I think it's best to understand it through how I came about creating the fund. And that was really, as I say, through this understanding that there was the power of the courts and the power of laws if you had financial access to them and the power of communities that were mobilising themselves and organising themselves to fight the injustices that they were facing. It goes across the board from climate justice to refugee rights to First Nations justice and everything in between. Um, I sort of was tasked with figuring out why don't we have big impact litigation in Australia the way that we have. Now, We've had a lot of big litigation in the last several years, but this is back in 2014-15. And I was looking overseas and there were these big court cases happening on climate change, big court cases happening in the US and South Africa and Brazil and all over the world and on lots of issues. And 
I spent a bit of time trying to figure out why weren't we seeing this sort of stuff happening in Australia and there's a complex range of factors. But the one really big one that I could do something about was this thing called adverse costs. And if you're lucky enough to have never been involved in litigation, you have no need to have ever known about them. But what they basically mean is that if you bring a court case and you lose, you have to pay the other side's legal bill. And that makes heaps of sense most of the time. Your Woolworths has sued Coles for some sort of business issue. And if they lose, they have to pay Coles the legal bill. That's fair. That's the same in most cases. But in public interest cases where you've got people really seeking government accountability to the laws that have been passed for their benefit, it doesn't make a lot of sense that you could have to pay the government's legal bill if you lose. Because if you've got a meritorious case, court cases are lost for lots of reasons, not because they're without merit necessarily. A win or a loss often more reflects what the law is doing. It doesn't provide a moral judgment. So something could be lawful and and completely immoral. It can be with merit to to challenge that sort of an action if there is a decent legal argument, but you could still lose. And because of that, the rest of the world of similar countries have developed or already have carve-outs so that if you're a public interest litigant, someone bringing a case for the public good, you don't have to risk the the costs of the other side. And that can be hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. So it's serious. You might have a real terrible unjust thing that's happened by the government. You think it's unlawful. You've got a free legal team to do it for you, a community legal service or a pro bono team. You've got the personal resilience and fortitude to go ahead and put yourself in the face of this sort of an issue. And then you have to pay the other side's legal bill. And that's just if you lose and that risk is just too massive for for most people. What Grata does is provide this financial support to say, you know what, you go ahead with the case. If you lose, we'll cover the cost. And it's this small thing that actually is making a big difference in enabling cases to actually get to court, especially those big structural impact cases. The kind of next point, I guess, for me was that not just that we wanted to get the cases into court, we wanted the cases to have maximum impact outside of court. And so I went overseas and I learned from the granddaddies of strategic litigation around the world in the US, like the ACLU and the UK and Europe, and really found that the most effective practitioners were those that were really integrating their work into movements and to social movement campaigns. That's how we came about with Grata. So what we have really is a couple of different aspects to our work. On the one hand, we work with legal teams to get cases in the position that we are able to fund them. So we think that they're strong enough. Sometimes they come to us perfectly ready to go and that's good. A lot of the time we do a lot of back and forth before we get to the point that we're prepared to fund them. And then we fund them, but we also really work hard to build the communities and movements that are bringing the cases so that they're able to really use the litigation to to shift the dial outside of court as well. And could you tell us a few of those sort of stories of what that looks like in reality? Yeah, absolutely. We've had a couple of really big wins lately. A number of years ago, I started working when it was just me at Grata. We've grown a team in time since then, but started working with a small community in Central Australia, about an hour southeast of Alice Springs. And they were working with a group of pro bono lawyers, Australian lawyers for remote Aboriginal rights, to talk to the government about the state of housing in their community. Their community housing was needing drastic repairs. People were experiencing things like running sewerage through their homes due to malfunctioning sewerage systems. 
regular flooding, the lack of a door in some cases, the lack of even locks to go on those doors, just basic things that you or I, any other tenant would reasonably want to have fixed if you were living in a rented property, which these people are. And the Northern Territory government just ignored them for years and years. And so they ultimately decided to sue the government. And that community sued the government for about 600 repairs that needed to take place really urgently. So Jasmine Kavanagh is one of the women who was part of that case. And she was getting up several times a night to mop up the sewage that was running through her house from this broken system. She was told, stop chucking stuff in your toilet. That was the response of the landlord, not let's check this out and figure out what was wrong with it. Later down the track along the litigation pathway, repairs were taken out and there was a tree root growing into Jasmine's sewage system, which is what was causing the problem. You know, she is there as a mum trying to protect her kid from getting sick. She talks to the government, who's her landlord, who she pays decent rents to, and they fob her off. That's just one of 600 odd of these sorts of issues. The community took it to court and the government responded really poorly. They said, we're actually going to counter sue you for $2 million in rental debts. And the community said, we don't know what these rental debts are, we don't know what they're talking about, and decided to continue. And by the time the community got to court eventually, the court chucked out that claim by the government straight away because the government had no evidence for that $2 million in rental debts. They literally had made up this counterclaim with no evidence. So that got chucked out, but also the community went on to win new standards of humane housing, legal standards of humane housing in the Territory, which affect remote housing across the Territory and have similar implications more broadly as well in Australia. That's sort of just one example of how getting into the court system, you're able to actually force government accountability where otherwise it's too easy for the government to ignore it or they can't act or they won't act. Courts have this ability to shine lights and ignore spin and PR and really get to the facts of a matter. And since then, there's been several other wins. Just recently, the High Court made a decision. It was the first time that the High Court had heard a kind of renter's rights case in a generation. And this was this same case. And the court there decided that not only do people deserve compensation for the lack of the thing, so, you know, compensation for not having a door for five years, for Ms Young, for example, one of the women involved, who sadly is now passed, the court decided actually people actually deserve compensation for the reasonable distress that any normal person would feel if you didn't have a back door, you didn't have security in your home for five years. So that massively increases the compensation bill potentially payable across the territory. And then another related win just recently as well is Laramba, which is a nearby community to Santa Teresa in relative terms, thinking of Central Australia is a pretty big place. It's a couple hours southwest of Alice. And they, along the same line of cases, argued that water quality was also part of the government's responsibility as the landlord. In Laramba, people were drinking taps producing water that have two and a half times the safe level of uranium in their drinking water. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to drink any uranium in my drinking water and neither do people in the And that's just naturally occurring in the bore water there. But anyway, it could easily dealt with. The government could have bought reverse osmosis filtration taps at Bunnings. So easily dealt with, but the government didn't deal with it. And so that community also won in court that the Territory has to provide safe, clean drinking water to remote community tenants. And that potentially has big implications elsewhere in Australia as well. Great to hear what these precedents can really mean for the broader communities and straddling those lines between the advocacy, community development and the nuts and bolts of people having their human rights respected and accountability being had. Amazing. What are some of your key learnings of working in this space? I've learnt so much in this space. Kind of boil them down. I think some of them are, 
you're only as good as the community around you. I've benefited from having an amazing team of people around me at the organization, employees, board, advisors, mentors, and and that's made all the difference. And I think just having deep, genuine relationships with the people that you're trying to serve and trying to work with, seeking to make sure that you have some accountability as well. It's all very well to get paid to work in the human rights field, but it's really important that as a worker in the field, we're also accountable to the communities that we're serving, not just holding other people accountable to them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm curious, what are some inspiring or thought-provoking or really impactful projects or initiatives that you've come across recently that you feel are creating really positive change? I have to say I'm very focused on grata projects. So I'm probably a little yeah. bit me. I think one that absorbing my time, particularly at the moment that I'm really excited about is we're working with community members in the Torres Strait from the Gadamulligal Nation in the northernmost part of the Torres Strait from islands of Boigu and Saibai, which are really low-lying islands and really at risk from climate change. They're already seeing massive impacts. So I'm talking about homes becoming unlivable, previously productive agricultural lands becoming untillable, cemeteries being washed into the sea, massive receding shorelines. You go on these islands and you go to the beaches and you see enormous coconut palms and pandanus palms and almond trees that are completely uprooted, you know, metres and metres of uprooted trees. So there are impacts that are already happening now and those impacts are going to get much worse very quickly. And Because of that, two men, Uncle Pabai Pabai and Uncle Paul Kabai, and their communities are suing the Australian government for climate change negligence. That's the first time the Australian government has ever been sued for negligence in Australia. And I think a global first that a First Nations community has sued their own government for negligence. But it does also follow on some exciting precedent from the Netherlands and a couple of other countries where courts have found that the government do have duties of care to their citizens and they have to reduce their emissions in line with the science as a way to stop being negligent, to stop causing the harm. And so those uncles, Paul and Uncle Pabai, are going back to court. They had on-country hearings in early 2023 where the court literally went to the Torres Strait and saw the impacts for their own eyes. We're about to go into expert evidence hearings, which will be really exciting to hear from climate scientists about what's actually happening from a science perspective. And that's a really exciting project in my mind because it's doing all of the things that at Grata Fund we really seek to do. It's really led by people on the ground. We are doing what we can to support. And it has also got potentially transformative impact in Australia if if they win. It'll mean that the Australian government has to reduce emissions in line with the science, which is a massive change from what it's doing right now. Wow. That is really exciting to hear. (laughs) And to finish off, Isabel, what are some books or resources that you would recommend to our listeners? A couple of things I'm reading and rereading a bit like Bibles in a way at the moment (laughs) are um, Hope in Darkness by Rebecca Solnit, which is a beautiful essay and not just beautiful, but soothing in terms of that sense often in the climate space that you just feel a bit hopeless or in human rights as well, that things feel so heavy and hard. Mm -hmm. And that's really an explanation of why it's so important to keep going, what we've got to look to from history as lessons for how you can keep going and, and how you can appreciate that because there is uncertainty in the future, that means that you do actually still have a chance to influence the future. So I think that's a big one. And I've also just released a book, which I should probably mention. Yeah. Which is called Courting Power, about really how 
the courts have, without people necessarily being aware, really been caught up in the culture wars that we've seen that, especially for the courts, happened post the Mabo decision and in more recent years as well, has led to some pretty profound politicisation of our courts, including the Administrative Appeals Tribunal that's recently been announced that it's going to be disbanded completely because it became so partisan that people had completely different rates of, for example, securing a refugee visa if they were heard by a judge who was appointed by the coalition versus by the Labor Party. My book is really about the importance of us understanding the role of the courts in our democracy, the role of citizens in bringing big litigation against governments to hold them accountable, but also making people a little aware of the forces out there that would like to undermine the role of the courts and the things that we can do about that and to stop that because nobody really wants to end up like what we see in the United States with these big, particularly anti-abortion rights cases that are having massive impact in the United States for people's lives now. Um, we are not completely immune from similar sorts of things happening in Australia, and that's something I think we need to be aware of as people. Mm. Wow, so much food for thought, and I feel like I need to go and read your book now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a massive download. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's great, and it is a really complex, nuanced system that impacts all of our lives directly or indirectly, you know. So thank you so much for sharing more about the work that you're doing and that your team's doing with the Grata Fund. It's fascinating, multi-layered and really important work. So it's Thanks been so terrific to have you on. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.